Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Here on the show and in social media especially, we see a constant stream of tragic stories about the consumption of dog around the world. Yes, I know it's painful for us to even contemplate, but I think we'll, we will learn some positive and hopeful progress as this segment moves along. The last time we talked about the widespread killing of dogs, we were focused mainly on the use of real fur from dogs being deceptively labeled as synthetic. And that show was aired May 3rd, 2015, and you can listen online by going to www.animalstodayradio.com. Because you don't want to accidentally buy real fur from dog or rabbit, right? The most recent big story about consumption of dogs was the yearly summer festival in southern China that involves the slaughter and eating of up to 10,000 dogs. Now, this festival is not an ancient traditional Chinese affair. It's a recent concoction of dog meat traders. But a glimmer of hope came by way of a story of a retired teacher who purchased and saved 100 dogs, spending $1,100 to do so. Now, there was a story earlier this year about a Chinese-style snack bar in Rio de Janeiro that was serving pastries containing meat obtained from stray dogs they had rounded up and brutally killed. In this case, the meat was advertised as beef, but what a horrifying practice. And did you see that absolutely heartbreaking picture of a distraught Chinese girl when she came across her missing pet dog now slaughtered and cooked in a food stall? Now, I'm not certain the story is authentic, but it really made me want to cry. But what can be done? What can we do? What hope is there to change the practices of people on the other side of the globe who I'm pretty certain don't care about what we do or think over here? Well, here in the United States, there's a relatively new group, at least the U.S. chapter is new, dedicated to combating the practice of dog and cat consumption around the world. And with us now is Fia Pereira, co-founder of the USA chapter of No to Dog Meat. Welcome to the program, Fia. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be on your show. Fia, most people know this happens, but it it sure is hard to talk about it. How widespread is the practice of the consumption of dogs and cats worldwide? Well, I mean, this is, um, I mean, I had never, you know, when I first started, uh, um, you know, uh, when I first heard about this, I mean, I I always kind of, I thought it was a joke, you know, that uh, different cultures eat dogs and cats. But um, it is, it's pretty pervasive, um, unfortunately. I mean, but you think about it, you know, China has billions of people. Um, you know, hundred, maybe I would say, you know, 20 million, uh, 20 million dogs are consumed every year in China. Um, uh, Korea, uh, probably about, uh, five to 10 million dogs are consumed there, dogs and cats, maybe a little bit more. And then we've got Vietnam and Malaysia and then Singapore. So, and, and, and there is a very pervasive underground dog meat trade here in the U.S. that we'll talk about. And that's, that's the horrific thing that people don't really know is happening. And our organization is really committed to raising awareness about what's happening in our own backyard. But, yes, it is happening. And, you know, you talked about Yulin. Yulin is a, a real problem. That is the festival. But this, hap- this is something that in certain provinces of China – these rural parts, people still like to consume dog and cat meat. Um, so, um, you know, it is pervasive, but not. But again, it's very important. Um, we're, our messaging is that we work, we're allied with lots of people in South Korea and in China and, and Malaysia, these different, we work with lots of grassroots organ, organizations that are trying to stop it. So there are a lot of younger people, a lot of people within these countries that are against it. So, you know, we're very clear that not everybody over there in China and these different countries are in support of dog and cat meat consumption because a lot of these animals are their pets. So where do these dogs come from? Well, in, for instance, in Korea, they do have the dogs are bred in on in dog, dog meat farmers. They have dogs that are bred for consumption raised in horrific conditions and transported in horrific conditions. But a lot, a lot of a higher percentage of dogs that we're seeing are actual people's pets that have been stolen. They've got collars. They've wow. got uh, wow. harnesses and cages. 
um, when we did a rally in front of the uh, last year in front of the uh, the, the uh, Hollywood Bowl, it was a Chinese funder event. So we took that uh, opportunity as a platform to really engage our Chinese uh, supporters to say, look, help us, help us put an end to the Yulin Dog Meat Festival. Uh, several women, I can't tell you how many people came up to us and thanked us for our work because I've had a lot of science in Chinese as well. One girl was hysterical and she showed us t- pictures and pictures of dogs on her phone that had been stolen by dog meat traders. So a lot of these people's animals are pets go missing. You know, from they're stolen out of backyards, they're stolen from people's homes. And let's say if a dog is in front of, of a shop, the dog is stolen. Oh my so God. in Vietnam, people are getting sick of it. I mean, people have actually beaten some of these towns have come together and beaten these dog meat you know, criminals. So it's, it's a, it is, a, and you know, in Vietnam, a lot of these guys, as you were saying, Yulin was, it is continued to be publicized by dog meat traders, which are, in essence, these guys are criminals. They pay off the police. So, um, you know, a lot of these, these are people stolen pets, and that's what's so tragic about it. Um, it's just, it's horrendous. Is, so, Thea, is this yeah. legal in China or in the other countries? You know, technically, it is not legal. Um, in, in Korea, it, the, the laws are so gray. This is the problem, is that, um, you know, Korea recognizes. I mean, they recognize that, you know, that, uh, uh, do, you know, a, a dog, the cruelty laws, animal abuse, and things like that. And it's not, you know, the dog meat farmers, it's, it's not a regulated business in China or any of these countries. But there isn't, you know, and, and China has, um, they do have, they're starting to have animal welfare laws over there. But the whole dog meat trade is just, is, is put in, it's, it's, uh, it, they turn a blind eye to it. So we're trying to get them to say, look, we don't want you, we're not pushing for regulation. We do not want the dog and cat meat trade regulated. We want it abolished. But first, let's recognize that these animals are companion animals. They're not, they shouldn't be raised for consumption. So it's, it's really, uh, it's difficult because you have a lot of these, um, these, these, these people that are kind of they, they just they kind of turn a blind eye to it, yeah. and um, there isn't that law about what is this. And so we have to be careful because we do not want it to be regulated. Right. Because if you regulate something, we're saying that's okay, we condone it. Right, exactly. So it's really about let's recognize that boiling a dog or cat alive, that is bar- that's torture. So let's go to the UN, let's put it on the map, let's say let's address how these animals are being uh, blowtorched, skinned alive, boiled alive an hour before they're eaten. So let's focus on ending this, this, this shining the spotlight on the, the, the barbaric manner in which these animals are tortured and push for it to be abolished. But let's first put it on the map and stop putting it, turning a blind eye to it. Uh, so it, um, uh, that's why we did a big rally in front of the Korean consulate, um, actually, for the Bacchanal Festival um, that, that recently um, is finishing up the end of this. Uh, they had their set in Korea. There's over a span of a month, they kill over a million dogs in Korea. For this festival. Wow, it's just so, horrifying, yeah. Thea. So know, tell, tell us, tell us um, the history of your group, Noted Dog Meat, and what's your mission? Uh-huh. Okay, well, we started in 2009. Our CEO, Julie DeCadney, who's she's British, wonderful woman. She's also a lawyer, and she's dedicated her life's mission is to uh, raise awareness to ending the campaign and advocate to advocate to stop stopping this horrendous trade. Um, it started in 2009 when she, in China, when she was in China and she witnessed the horrors in a market. One side, there were little kids playing with puppies. The other side, they were chopping up dogs alive. And she, in that moment, she just she realized she couldn't turn back. She needed to do something. And I followed her campaign. I always followed her on social media, you know, all over Facebook. And then I started getting her emails. And, and then last year, I just, I, I, my friend, we were driving back from Palm Springs. And I saw this big Chinese splendor sign. I said, we have to do a rally about the Yulin Dogney Festival. And then I, you know, started putting together this rally. And then one of my best friends, Lori Allen, who's like, she's the other co-founders, terrific, um, wonderful activist and actress. She's the voice of Pearl the Whale and SpongeBob. She's Family Guy. She's in, in the movie Inside Out. And she really jumped on the bandwagon. We, we took this and ran with it and said, we are going to open up the U.S. chapter and address these issues that are going on here in the United States. So we're a new organization. We're, we're small. We're burgeoning. We're growing. Um, but what's great about what we do is we make, we, we have our hands out to everybody. Please join us in this crusade. We can all band together to stop this. We have, um, you know, we have people can call us, call me, and people can put on their own rallies. We can organize that. Yeah. 
We have our website is very accessible that you can get flyers and pamphlets and banners. So people can really start initiating their own rallies and protests in their in their different uh, communities. We also have, um, you know, T-shirts, all this stuff. But, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm excited about where we're going because I think that, you know, sometimes when people say, you know, it's so horrific, I, I don't want to hear about it. it's going on somewhere else. And I say, actually, it's going on here in right. California. Right. And they, they look at me, what? And I said, people's dogs are being taken. Wow. If, if dogs disappear, you don't know if your dog is a bait for pit bull fighting or could be eaten. Wow. Fee, in the last and unfortunately, 30... that is the truth. Yeah. yeah, no, I know it is. And I'm, I'm glad you're yeah. emphasizing this to my listeners. Thank you. In the last 30 mm-hmm. seconds, you have an event coming up, Putting yes. for Pups in September in Pasadena, California. Can, t- can you tell us about that very briefly? Yes, yes. Thank you so much. On, on a bright and shining note, we have this wonderful, fun event. It's a uh, Putting for Pups celebrity golf tournament by day. Uh, we've got a uh, very famous golfer, Patrick Dempsey, out there, and Vic Armstrong. We've got all these Hollywood stuntmen there. It's going to be fantastic. So we have that during the day. You, any listener that plays golf, come out, hit a hole-in-one, win a Cadillac. And then at 7 o'clock, we have our red carpet event, and that's going to be a, a really wonderful time. We have Chad Dean, who is our ambassador. He is wonderful. He has many dogs of his own. He's, he's going to be there as our doggy angel ambassador. We've got and a number of other celebrities and just really amazing people that um you know all you know all of our supporters will be there great entertainment so i think it's going to be a great time for all you can go for putting for go to puttingforpups.com to get a ticket so it's going to be uh, really a lot of fun wonderful well good luck with the fundraiser and good luck with the new organization it's a big challenge and an important cause thank you very much fia Pereira, and we look forward to hearing more about your work Thank you so much for having me on your show. So you and your family have decided to get a dog or cat. We think that's great. And we want to remind you to adopt your next companion animal instead of buying. That's because shelters have so many loving dogs and cats waiting for a home that it just doesn't make sense to buy a pet from a breeder or pet store. And sadly, over half of all animals that enter shelters are killed. That's millions per year. So when you adopt your pet from a shelter, most likely, you really are saving a life. When you go to a shelter to adopt your new dog or cat, you will find many wonderful choices for your new family member. And please tell your friends and family to visit the shelter when they are ready to get a new dog or cat. Ask anyone. When you adopt an animal, you'll have a loyal friend for life. And you'll feel pretty good, too. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIAnimals.org and on Facebook. That's AIAnimals.org. Hey folks, it's Danny here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. Do Do you owe the IRS money? Do you have years of unfiled returns? Has the IRS garnished your wages or put a lien against your house? The IRS has the power to make you pay back what they claim you owe and will stop at nothing to collect. If you are losing sleep over your IRS tax problem, there is a solution. Call Signature Tax now. Speak with our professionals and feel the weight of your tax burden lifted from your shoulders. Call 800-859-9446 for your free and confidential analysis on ending your tax nightmare. We can help get your life back on track and give you the fresh start you deserve. 
Our A-plus BBB-rated tax resolution team has over 125 years of combined experience to get you the best deal possible while stopping the IRS dead in their tracks. Call Signature Tax now at 800-859-9446. Call 800-859-9446. Again, that's 800-859-9446. 800-859-9446. Welcome back. We've been following the three lawsuits led by the Non-Human Rights Project on behalf of four captive chimpanzees in the state of New York. The lawsuits seek to achieve legal rights for animals other than humans through the courts, and in a few short years, they have made great strides. I want to welcome Natalie Prozen, Executive Director of the Non-Human Rights Project Incorporated, who's going to update us on a recent ruling, a very important ruling, in one of those New York cases. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Natalie, for our newer listeners and those who haven't been following uh, the work closely with what's going on with the Non-Human Rights Project in these lawsuits, would you please explain the legal basis and approach of the suits and tell us about the Non-Human Rights Project? Sure, I'd love to. So the Non-Human Rights Project was formed in order to change how the legal system views non-human animals. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are already aware that non-human animals are considered property under our legal system. And so the Non-Human Rights Project is trying to change that. And what we're doing is uh, filing first-of-their-kind lawsuits in which we argue that certain cognitively complex species of animals, like great apes, elephants, and cetaceans, so dolphins, orcas, whales, um, are entitled to legal personhood uh, with the fundamental right to bodily liberty. And we're filing these lawsuits uh, using this ancient writ or cause of action known as habeas corpus. And so in 2013, we launched our first series of lawsuits uh, in which we filed habeas corpus petitions on behalf of four chimpanzees in New York State, asking the courts to declare them legal persons with the right to bodily liberty. And so ultimately, when, if, if and when we are successful, these chimpanzees can be transferred to a sanctuary where their rights, their one right that we've asked the court to give them, can be most respected. Okay, and, and the organization has chosen to file the lawsuits uh, in contrast to trying to get legislation passed or try to achieve this in another way. That is correct. We are using the legal system to do that. Okay. Okay, so there's this case of Hercules and Leo, and a ruling has just come down about them. Tell us about Hercules and Leo, where they came from, and uh, the steps that have led us to this recent ruling. So Hercules and Leo are two young chimpanzees that are being used for non-medical research at SUNY Stony Brook University in Long Island, New York. And um, they're being used for research research to study uh, how uh, early humans moved around. We originally filed a lawsuit on their behalf in 2013. And through a series of events um, at an appellate court level, uh, our our case was dismissed, um, basically on on a technicality. So we decided to refile the case this year in a different uh, jurisdiction uh, in in Manhattan, in in a New York County uh, Supreme Court. And what Justice Barbara Jaffe did um, in April of this year was that she signed an order to show cause under the habeas corpus statute. This is the first time that this has ever happened before in legal history. And so what this effectively did was it shifted the burden. And what she was saying in signing this order is she ordered the university, who's being represented by the Attorney General of New York because it's a state-owned institution, she ordered the university into her courtroom to give a legally justifiable reason as to why they were holding Hercules and Leo captive. So in May, we had this really 
unprecedented two-hour hearing um, in front of her. And we made our substantive legal arguments as to why Hercules and Leo should be legal persons with the fundamental right to bodily liberty. So just a few weeks ago, her decision, she finally issued her decision. And the decision um, was extensive. It was thorough. And on almost all of the counts, we won, except the last one, which is whether or not Hercules and Leo are legal persons. So she said we had standing, we had venue, all the procedural elements we won. But the one thing that she said and she concluded with was that she was bound by one of last one of last year's um, previous rulings in our cases um, on behalf of Tommy. And so she was bound by that appellate court in that case. And basically her hands were tied and she could not uh, grant them legal personhood because she was looking to the appellate courts above her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that decision came down a few weeks ago. Now the next day, the university uh, made a public announcement that they were going to be retiring Hercules and Leo from research. Um, so ever since then, we have been deep in negotiations with Stony Brook University and their, uh, the owners of Hercules and Leo, which is New Iberia Research Center in Louisiana, to have them transferred to save the chimps uh, sanctuary in Florida. Yes. And uh, are you going to appeal this ruling? Yeah, so uh, yesterday we did file a, a motion for appeal. Um, simply, be, we want the negotiations to continue, and they will continue. Um, and we're quite, we're, we're quite, um, we're far along in those negotiations. But because of the, the timing of how you only get a certain amount of days to appeal something, and so we just wanted to go forward with the appeal just in case the uh, the settlement negotiations did not work out, or just in case uh, New Iberia and Stony Brook decide to send Hercules and Leo to anything uh, other than Save the Chimp Sanctuary or um, uh, another uh, North American Primate Sanctuary Alliance uh, sanctuary member. Uh, we Basically, we're trying to prevent them from moving them to a place that won't be good for them. Yes. Can you briefly uh, review then what happened to the uh, previous cases with Kiko and and Tommy? Sure. So uh, both those cases are much farther along um, in the legal system than Hercules and Leo's case because we had to refile their case this year. So uh, in both Tommy and Kiko's case, we reached the intermediate appellate court level. Um, And they're in different jurisdictions within New York. So two different courts had heard their case. Uh, last year, um, issues, uh, decisions were issued in both of their cases. In Tommy's case, the court ruled that Tommy is not a legal person because he cannot bear any duties or responsibilities. In Kiko's case, however, uh, the court assumed for the purposes of the proceeding um, that Kiko was a legal person and said that we could not use habeas corpus to transfer Kiko from one place of confinement to another. So where those cases are at right now, we've appealed them to the highest court in New York, which is the Court of Appeals, and we're waiting to see if the Court of Appeals will hear our cases. Got it. Now, it doesn't end, the story doesn't end in New York State because I... We've been following this, and we know that you're eyeing other states and other species. Yes, that is correct. But no details yet. (laughs) Well, I can be careful with what I say, but I will say we have um, another lawsuit uh, in the making right now on behalf of elephants. And I can't disclose where it's going to be filed, but uh, we're deep in our preparations for that. And... What the Non-Human Rights Project has done in leading up to the filing of our first lawsuits in New York is we spent seven years researching about 60, 60 legal issues across the country to define um, and look at which jurisdictions would be most receptive to our legal arguments. So we started in New York, and we're going to go from there. And we're going to continue filing these lawsuits on behalf of the most cognitively complex species of animals. 
boy, I would love to see your guy's strategy room. It must be <laughs> awesome. And you used a term earlier, body liberty. What are the consequences of granting body liberty to a non-human animal? Right. So we're, we're seeking bodily liberty, and I, that is one fundamental basic legal right. And let me just back up and say that um, as human beings, we have an infinite number of legal rights. In fact, it would probably be impossible to list them all. I enjoy some rights that you don't enjoy just based off of where I live or perhaps my age or my gender. But what we're asking for is simply one legal right for our uh, plaintiff. And what bodily liberty means is that they will, um, our plaintiffs won't be able to be caged anymore, and they'll have as much freedom as they possibly can have. Um, I mean, ultimately, we would love to transfer them back to the wild, but most of these animals have been born in captivity, and they just simply would not survive. So the next best place for them, since we cannot turn them, return them to the wilds of Africa where they belong, is to place them in a sanctuary. Natalie, I want to thank you for joining us here on Animals Today to describe these recent events out of the Non-Human Rights Project. These are very exciting and important developments, and we look forward to hearing more updates from you soon. Oh, thank you so much. Dana Lash here. Our freedom and independence is not free. Veterans and their families pay the price for your freedom and for mine. Veterans' families are many times unprepared to deal with what our warriors bring home. The pain, the nightmares, feelings of detachment, irritability, trouble concentrating, and sleeplessness. These are some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. The Purple Heart Foundation would like to offer all of you out there, all of my listeners, the book Tears of a Warrior, a family story of combat by Janet and Anthony Seahorn as a free gift. Tears of a Warrior was written to educate families families and veterans about the symptoms of PTS and to offer strategies for living with the disorder. The book is free to anyone who would like a copy. All you pay is shipping. Go to purpleheartfoundation.org. That's purpleheartfoundation.org or call 800-935-9941. That's 800-935-9941. Order the free book or give a donation in honor of a veteran you know. You can donate a car or cash. All donations go directly to help veterans nationwide. 800-935-9941 or purpleheartfoundation.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. As we all marvel at the amazing pictures that a tiny spacecraft has sent to us from the farthest reaches of our solar system, it's a good time to think about all the ways we've benefited from space exploration, and might still in the future. Modern conveniences like cell phone cameras, scratch-resistant lenses for sunglasses, and water purification systems were all originally developed by NASA. Because of all the brilliant minds working there, it often seems like the only limit on what we can create is our own imagination. Unfortunately, one of the barriers to innovation is entirely man-made and unique to America, legal fear. Currently, a device invented by a former NASA engineer that could save lives by making it impossible to text, talk, or email on a cell phone while driving is being kept off the market, in large part because of fears about lawsuits. Let's be fair, there are actually many products that haven't made it to market because of concerns about the excessive litigation in America, and you would be amazed at what they can do. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Do you ever wonder where your food comes from or how it was raised? You're not alone. Today's consumers are asking more questions than ever about animal welfare, hormones, and antibiotics, and whether GMO foods are safe to eat. The good news is there's a group of farm women across the country dedicated to helping you make confident food choices for you and your family. Working on everything from dairy farms to large row crop operations, these women are part of Common Ground, a grassroots organization that fosters conversations between the women who grow America's food and the women who buy it. I'm Amy Robinette, a grass-fed beef producer and livestock processor from North Carolina. As the mother of two children and a Common Ground volunteer, I love sharing personal stories from our farm and helping those not connected to farming learn about today's food production. Join the food and farming conversation at findourcommonground.com and look for Common Ground on Facebook and Twitter. Welcome back. We received notice from our friends at the American Bird Conservancy that they won a big ruling in favor of bald and golden eagles. 
This is another chapter in the ongoing disagreement between the wind energy industry and those who recognize that the turbines injure and kill many raptors and bats and that tighter regulation of the wind farms, especially where they are built, is needed. The headline of the opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal reads, quote, Obama's wind energy lobby gets blown away. A California judge rules in favor of bald eagles and against 30-year permits to shred them. I want to welcome attorney Eric Glitzenstein, who represented the American Bird Conservancy as a plaintiff in the case. He is a founding partner of Meyer, Glitzenstein, and Eubanks, where he specializes in environmental, wildlife, animal protection, natural resource, open government, and other public interest cases. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Happy to be here. Eric, we have covered uh, this issue over the years a few times with the American Bird Conservancy and also Save the Eagles International. Give us a little background on this lawsuit. What led up to it? For um, quite a few years, there have been um, concerns that wind power, although obviously of importance if we shift away from fossil fuels, as everyone recognizes, or at least everyone who acknowledges that climate change is a serious problem, that wind power is not without environmental costs, especially when turbines are placed in locations that are highly risky and problematic for wildlife species. You mentioned bald and golden eagles and bats, um, and many other migratory birds and other species can be affected if wind turbines, which are uh, not your mom and pop's uh, little wind power uh, operations. These are massive industrial power plants that take up a huge amount of space and, and a particular concern to birds of all kinds, but particularly raptors, um, eagles, and, and, uh, and hawks, and, and other um, birds of prey. Uh, they take up a huge amount of airspace. Um, and when they're placed in uh, a migratory route uh, or they're placed near nesting sites or other sites of critical biological importance, uh, they can have enormous uh, adverse consequences. And so for quite a few years, um, groups like the American Bird Conservancy um, have been trying to impress upon the industry as well as the administration uh, that we need to develop a balanced wildlife-sensitive approach uh, to developing um, renewable energy sources and wind power in particular. Um, and unfortunately, um, it's, I think it's fair to say uh, that uh, some of these concerns um, have really not played out with wildlife-friendly policies. And the one that's at issue in the case that we litigated successfully uh, was a uh, regulation that dealt with a regulation that was issued under the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, a statute that specifically protects um, those species because of their extraordinary uh, cultural importance, uh, importance to Native American communities, uh, and simply their uh, iconic significance to the U.S., um, and uh, the purpose of that statute really is to provide a very protective regime. And in light of that protective regime, for many years, um, the maximum length of a permit that one could take in order to have an adverse impact on eagles, um, and that's uh, an adverse impact of killing, injuring, um, even disturbing eagles that are attempting to breed, was a five-year permit length. Um, uh, but at the behest of the wind power industry, which argued that it needed a much longer permit term uh, in order to accommodate wind power projects in eagle habitat. And that is the whole point of getting a permit, because if you're not going to kill eagles or harm eagles and you don't need that kind of permit, uh, that they needed a much, much longer permit term. Um, and uh, many people raised concerns about uh, the kind of permit duration they were asking for, which would be up to 30 years uh, arguing that we don't know enough about how these projects are going to impact eagle populations. We don't even know en enough about the biology and population dynamics of eagles uh, over a period of, of, of duration like that. And therefore, to adopt that kind of a, uh, a regulation allowing permits of that length would be extraordinarily risky and potentially devastating to eagle populations. Um, and uh, notwithstanding concerns like that expressed by American Bird Conservancy, but also many other conservation and environmental groups, uh, as well as Native American representatives and tribes, um, scientists uh, who study eagles, uh, and rather remarkably, even the National Park Service, which is a fellow uh, agency within the Interior Department, um, commented to the Fish and Wildlife Service, the agency that had to adopt these regulations, 
that this would be uh, harmful uh, to eagles who use national parks as well as to uh, populations that are uh, taking advantage of migratory routes where uh, national parks exist. Even the National Park Service uh, urged that this rule not be adopted and said it was excessively risky. Notwithstanding those concerns, uh, the rule was adopted. Um, and to make it actually uh, perhaps most uh, disturbing, was adopted without even analyzing the impacts uh, under uh, one of the most important environmental laws that's ever been adopted, the National Environmental Policy Act. And the whole purpose of that statute, which uh, uh, is frequently referred to as NEPA, um, there's a federal NEPA, and there are many states have adopted a substantial equivalent, but the purpose of those kinds of statutes is at least to look before you leap, to at least seriously study the impacts of a particular agency action, uh, as well as possible alternatives to that agency action. Um, and uh, as I say, perhaps most disturbing of all, uh, despite uh, many people urging the government to at least seriously scrutinize these kinds of uh, impacts from a rule like this under the National Environmental Policy Act um, in a uh, NEPA document, um, the government refused to do so. Okay. And they refused to do so even though their own internal experts uh, on these issues, both their experts on eagles as well as their experts on compliance with NEPA, uh, in the opinion that we received from the judge, uh, she lays out um, how the experts themselves in, within the Fish and Wildlife Service urged um, that uh, the rule not be adopted in the form it was, and that at the very least there be a serious analysis of the uh, impacts and alternatives. And, and notwithstanding all of that, uh, the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service went ahead and adopted the regulation with this uh, exponential increase in the number of years that eagles could be killed or otherwise taken. Um, we went to court, and of course, uh, as you indicated, we received a favorable ruling from the judge. But that, that sort of gives you an overall context for the ruling that we received. Why do you think the regulation was, uh, what the 30-year permits were permitted to, to go forward? Uh, what, what were the factors behind the scenes that, that led to that? Yeah, well, well, there's really actually no secret about that. It, it was laid out in the rule itself. Um, and the rule itself made quite clear that they were doing it specifically at the request of one industry, which was the wind power industry, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously um, has a great deal of sway uh, in this day and age, particularly with the Obama administration. Um, and I should emphasize that, uh, again, uh, American Bird Conservancy, um, uh, many who care about these issues uh, don't necessarily see themselves as being uh, in conflict or should be in conflict with the wind power industry. Uh, there are many places where one can build wind power projects that would help, you know, create a shift to renewable energy, um, but that don't involve these kinds of very serious impacts on wildlife. Um, but there seems to be an attitude among some, and I, I sad to say, I think among some in the administration, who believe that we really have to promote renewable energy at all costs, yeah. uh, even costs that uh, one would ordinarily believe to be uh, ex excessively high for wildlife and wildlife populations. Um, and so when the wind power industry asked for a 30-year permit term, they, they received it. Um, and that was really the, the rationale for it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's sort of said that way point blank when the rule was adopted, that the wind power industry said they wanted a, a permit term that long in order to accommodate uh, their projects of 20 or 30 years, as well as to facilitate financing of those projects. And the administration went along with that without really even analyzing whether it was truly necessary for the industry, what the consequences would be, um, and those kinds of factors that one would ordinarily look at when one was adopt when one would be adopting a policy of this magnitude. But but it really is as simple as that. It's something that this particular industry desired, um, and the administration unfortunately just sort of handed it to them on a silver platter. Eric, what do you think happens now? Well, under the court's ruling, the 30-year permit term was. Uh, eliminated, vacated in legal parlance, um, pending an analysis that the judge said had to be done under the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, and so at the bare minimum, what we're hoping is that the government, um, federal government, Fish and Wildlife Service in particular, will take that to heart and will go back and do a very serious analysis 
um, including looking at all aspects of the rule. Um, there are ways in which one can have a longer uh, project term that don't necessarily take the kind of risks with vehicles that this rule took. Uh, for example, uh, nothing under the old rule where there was a five-year permit length necessarily precluded that permit term being extended, but only when there would be appropriate public review um, and only when there would be appropriate scientific input. And, and one of the things that the American Bird Conservancy has urged for many years, and really an organization that I have to say um, had the courage um, and the foresight to take on this battle uh, when others would, would not necessarily be willing to do so, uh, they basically urged that as long as we're building in safeguards so that we're taking into account new information, if we learn new things about how to mitigate or minimize impacts on eagle populations, which we really don't know at all at this point, mm -hmm. those things can be incorporated into the process in a way that they really have not been um, with the rule that was adopted. So we're hoping that not only will they comply with the, with the technical terms of what the court said they had to do, but they will really take it to heart and, and adopt a rule which is much more productive and strikes a much better balance uh, between the needs of wildlife and eagles in particular um, and the importance of developing renewable energy and wind power specifically. Right, with balance being the operative term, right, Eric? Correct. Yeah. That's exactly what we're looking for. Okay. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Eric Glitzenstein, for joining us on Animals Today. Congratulations on uh, this victory, and we really appreciate your work on uh, behalf of all of us and our uh, friends, the raptors. Well, my pleasure to be here, and I appreciate your covering these issues. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas, to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals, to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Supporting those who defend our country is one of the important missions of Colorado Technical University, or CTU. In partnership with the Yellow Ribbon Fund, CTU awards 50 scholarships annually to wounded service members, spouses of wounded service members, and caregivers. The scholarship covers tuition, books, and fees for a single degree program, along with a new laptop computer. CTU is recognized as one of the best online bachelor's programs by U.S. News & World Report, and as a best for vets college by Military Times. The university offers more than 100 undergraduate and graduate programs, including business, criminal justice, computer science, and engineering. At CTU, students can study online, on campus, or a blend of both and learn whenever and wherever fits with their schedules. The deadline for the CTU Wounded Warrior Scholarship Program is September 15th. To learn more about the Wounded Warrior Scholarship Program offered by CTU, visit coloradotech.edu WW. For important disclosures and information, visit coloradotech.edu disclosures. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. This report is brought to you by Colorado Technical University. I'm Bob Dorigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. For millions of baseball fans who attend big league games each year, the possibility of catching a foul ball is one of the attractions of the game. According to one study, as many as 53,000 foul balls are caught by happy fans each year. However, if lawyers who just filed a class action lawsuit against Major League Baseball have their way, a lot fewer fans will be leaving games with a souvenir ball. Under the lawsuit, all ballparks, including the historic Wrigley Field in Chicago and Fenway Park in Boston, would be required to extend protective netting from behind home plate all the way to the foul poles in left and right field. The lawyers argue that warnings about foul balls printed on tickets, posted around the ballparks, and mentioned over the PA system are not enough. Let's be fair, serious injuries do happen, and baseballs have been flying into the stands for decades, even before Babe Ruth was playing. But do we really want a policy like this that affects millions of baseball fans to be decided by one lawsuit? Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Not available in California, Louisiana, and Virginia.
Listeners, do you have startup capital and want to invest in a booming business with incredible profit and growth potential? The opportunity is now because Fresh Healthy Vending, the number one healthy vending franchise in North America, is looking for a few business-savvy, healthy-minded people right here in the local area to become Fresh Healthy Vending franchise owners. We're growing so fast that we've had hundreds of new franchise owners in the last few years alone. Now you can join them. This area has a huge demand for Fresh Healthy organic snacks on the go, and that's exactly what you'll be selling with your Fresh Healthy Vending machine. We've already identified prime high-traffic locations that are perfect for healthy vending machines. Now we just need the right people to join our franchise network and help Fresh Healthy Vending continue to boom. If this sounds like you, go to readyforfresh.com today and enter code 1414. We'll send you a free owner information kit. As an added bonus to new franchise owners, we'll also pay half the franchise fees. Hurry, this offer is limited. Just go to readyforfresh.com and enter code 1414. That's readyforfresh.com, code 1414. back to the show. I used to have a friend here in town and he provide temporary dog and cat foster services for people in short-term emergency situations. For example, if an elderly person who lived alone with their dog found herself in a hospital suddenly, they would make arrangements to care for the dog, usually by making multiple visits into the house per day to provide food, water, exercise, and companionship. I remember searching around on the internet to see if I can find another example of an individual or group providing this specific kind of service, which is different from your typical fostering, where the goal is to get the animal adopted to a new forever home. Well, I recently discovered a great organization called PACT that does this sort of thing and takes it to the next level, actually. And they are doing great things for families and their dogs and cats in the Delaware Valley area. I now want to welcome Buzz Miller, founder of PACT, which stands for People Plus Animals Equals Companions Together. Welcome to the program, Buzz. Thank you, Lori. It's a pleasure. Buzz, what is PACT? You gave what the letters mean, and through the PAC program, it's not just every single instance we basically save the life of a companion animal. We prevent them from going into the shelter system, which some shelters are better than ever, but the euthanasia rate throughout the country is still probably about 45%. We solve the problem of people that really love their animals and uh, want them back and are having a temporary crisis. So I've been rescuing animals for over 30 years, and I heard about five years ago from a lot of the major shelters in our area I dealt with that young, healthy kids were coming in there, late teens, early, mid-20s, and giving them animals. But when they would hand them over, they would literally lay on the floor and cry their eyes out, and the shelter would say, well, if you're so upset, and you're not giving the animal here because you want to get rid of it for whatever reason, why don't you take it home with you? And the answer all the time was, I have to go to Afghanistan for a year. I have to go to the Middle East for a year. I have to go to Iraq for a year. They were in the military, and I found out uh, through a decent amount of research, nobody was providing for these animals. So primarily young kids, sometimes people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s were going overseas in the military in war zones and had to give their animals to a shelter because there was no program that I knew of or the shelters knew of that would take care of these animals for a year. It's easy to find somebody to take care of your loving animal for a weekend, for a week or two, but these were one year where the dogs especially had to be walked an average or twice a day, fed once or twice a day, really should be played with. So it was a long-term commitment and there was no program really handling this problem. And these people would never see them once they left them in a the shelter system. We only take in animals that they have no one else to take care of it. If they have a relative, close friend, somebody they trust that will take that animal. And it's not only for a year. We basically call ourselves long-term fosters. Usually it's at least a month or two, and it's been up to two and a half years, anything in between. The one thing uh, I wanted to clarify, Lori, is, yes, we started in the Delaware Valley. We did our first placements at the end of 2011. Uh, it took us a year to get things organized because there was nowhere to go, no program, uh, no mentor, no book, no course. So we sort of fumbled our way in the very beginning, to be honest. But what's happened in the three years after we began it, 
we now are getting animals flown and driven to us by the military from about 25 states, half the country. We have actually had animals driven to the Delaware Valley. We're located right outside Philadelphia. We've had them flown and driven here from California, Texas, Florida, Arizona, Idaho, the whole East Coast, basically half the country. We find ways to get them here. We work like crazy. We're available almost 24-7. We're there when the animal arrives by airplane, by car, however he gets here. We're there when the animal is picked up. But the other thing, beside the fact we're working with all five branches of the military all over the world now, because sometimes someone will be in South Korea or the Middle East, and they're not happy with a home they found. They find out about us. They email or call us from the Middle East or from Afghanistan, and we work out a way to have the animal transported here. In addition to that, about two years ago, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, otherwise known as CHOP, which is usually considered in almost every poll the number one children's hospital in the country, asked us could we adapt the problem to children there because the children were in the hospital, usually with cancer, serious heart problems, major diseases, uh, and the parents were in the Ronald McDonald houses, and the Ronald McDonald houses don't allow the animals in there. So you run into parents that have nowhere to put an animal that means a lot to the kid and the family. So now we're working with every major children's hospital in the Delaware Valley and also, we're now working with adult hospitals, and we're even getting animals flown and driven here for people hospitalized throughout the country. Not to the same extent we're getting the military throughout the country, but we've had a cat flown here uh, from Seattle. Uh, the woman had cancer. She was in her 40s. We've had other cancer people, breast cancer, so on, hip replacements where they couldn't walk the dogs, and they're oh, hundreds of miles from here. So we're really expanding throughout the country with the program now. Uh, we're growing like crazy. Every year we've doubled the number of animals we've helped. Unfortunately, we've doubled the number of employees because uh, we have uh, also doubled our volunteers. But the way we're growing, we're always out trying to find innovative ways to raise money because we are probably the only one that's doing it with all the depth and hands-on experience. There's one other fact that it's really key. I wanted to say, Lori, locally in the Delaware Valley, we work with almost every 24-7 vet office because you never know when an animal's going to get sick. And if we get a call at 3 a.m. and midnight, which we've had happen, we look for the nearest 24-7 vet office and have them rush the animal there, and we call the vet office in advance. Uh, and every vet office to work with us has to be top-rated and has to give us a major discount. We also have created a bunch of trainers, doggy daycares, food suppliers. We've created a whole infrastructure around our foster homes where we try and solve every conceivable problem that could happen while the dogs or the cats being fostered. We have done a few other animals, but it's been about 98% dogs and cats, about 75% dogs, 25% cats. So that is rapid machine gun fire for me where the program is today from where it started three four years ago what a wonderful thing that you're doing buzz you have heartwarming videos of military couples being reunited with their animals and if people really want to see what you do they should check out these professionally produced pieces buzz what's your website pack p-a-c-t four spelled out f-o-r animals with an s dot org what we want to do is keep the animals in safe premises until the people come home, have them treat as family. We've never lost an animal yet. We'll do anything to make sure the animal is as healthy and happy as when it was left off, if not happier or healthier and healthier. We even require under contract for the foster homes to continually write, send photos, send videos to the owner uh, with internet today and computers and email we have them required to send information to let the owner see, especially some young kid in the middle of nowhere. It's in the military. He sees it as animals happy. He's playing in the snow. He's on the beach. He's in a dog park, whatever. So it's an amazing program. <laughs> I mean, I do it because I got to tell you, it makes me a lot happier than when I got burned out as a lawyer 11 years ago. Buzz Miller, founder of PAC, thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.